Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that you open our eyes to the majesty of Jesus, to his greatness, and to our great need. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 22 says, in the book of Luke chapter 4, Jesus said to them, So I all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Now, if we've been following the book of Luke so far, this is a really unexpected turn. It's really strange because up until chapter 4, verse 22, uh, Jesus has really been received by everyone with great uh, warmth and adoration and universal acclaim. And then suddenly, in verse 22, we come to this really strange saying, or whatever they say to him, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, when we uh, first look at it, you might think that that's a bit of a compliment, right? It's like, oh, you know, isn't this Andrew Ong's son? You know, the young lad has grown up. Isn't this really great? But that's not what they really mean. That's not a compliment. What they're really saying is, who does Jesus think he is? So we've uh, looked at the first three chapters of the book of Luke, and everything has been positive about Jesus. You know, everybody's loved Jesus. Everybody's welcomed Jesus. And now, for the first time, we have something negative. And as we've been looking through chapter 4, you'll see that uh, it is so negative that at the end of this little account, they want to throw him off the cliff. Now, to put it to you in uh, perspective, it's a bit like, okay, let's say I come up here today and I'm starting to preach to you and you think, oh, you know, it's good to see Andrew here again this morning. You know, you have warm feelings for me. And then by the end of the sermon, 40 minutes later, you want to take me over to next and throw me off the top of the building. Now, what is happening here? Why is this this great change of feeling and emotion towards Jesus. What has changed uh, in that little section that we see that, that causes everybody from suddenly loving Jesus to having trouble with Jesus? Now, last week we saw, uh, if you see up here, we look at the things uh, geographically. So last week uh, we saw that Jesus uh, was baptized. Oh, you can't see very well. Okay, well, this is the River Jordan. And Jesus, uh, many scholars believe, was baptized here by John the Baptist, and then he went off and uh, was tempted by the desert somewhere in the wilderness here. But then it says here in the chapter 4, verse 14, that he returns to this area called Galilee. Okay, this area called Galilee. Uh, so next slide. Okay, so this is the area of Galilee. It's, it's, it's blown up for you. And it says there that he was preaching all around the area, and then we don't know how long, maybe it's several weeks, several months, when he finds himself back in his hometown of Nazareth. Okay, now Nazareth is not a, a major city. It's just a small town, a bit like a, you know, a bit of a provincial uh, city. It's not very big at all. And he begins uh, his ministry in his hometown. And it's recorded for us that he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. On the Sabbath day. And he was given um, the scroll. Okay, we're not sure of whether he chose the scroll of the prophet Isaiah himself or whether it was given to him. And he turns to Isaiah chapter 61. And this is what he read in verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, it then says that uh, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and then he sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue was fastened on him. Now, what was happening here? Well, Jesus had uh, been doing his ministry, and he came come to his own hometown, 
And they probably thought, you know, this uh, Jesus has become a, a popular preacher. Let's listen to him at our synagogue. And uh, he was given the Bible reading, and he decided to uh, read from Isaiah chapter 61. He sat down and everyone looked at him. Now, you might sort of be thinking, how is that possible, right? Because, you know, Isaiah, uh, sorry, not Isaiah, Matthias, Matthias came up here to read the Bible, and he's sitting down, and we all don't look at Matthias, right? Maybe you should all look at Matthias now, okay? So what was happening? Well, apparently in the synagogue in those days, um, the, the preacher would sit down, and all the congregation would be standing up. Now, isn't that a good idea? Because if I sat down, I could preach for a lot longer, and uh, if you were standing up, you'd pay attention a lot better too, right? So that's what happened. So he, he read, and then he sat down to preach, and everybody was looking at him. Now, what was it that he preached on from Isaiah chapter 61? That was his text, but what was his message? Well, the message in verse 21 was, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that's a really short sermon, right? Now, but obviously, he must have preached a lot and a lot longer than that. But Luke condenses it by telling us the big idea of his sermon, which was, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So what he's saying is, the passage of Isaiah 61 is fulfilled in Jesus, in himself. Uh, all the expectations which were pregnant in Isaiah 61 have been fulfilled and given birth right then and there, because Jesus had come into the world. Now Jesus couldn't make a bigger or larger claim about himself, or a greater claim about himself, because he is saying to his hometown synagogue people, that I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. I am the king, and the kingdom of God is coming through me. Because Isaiah chapter 61 is not just any old Bible passage from the Old Testament, it is a very rich and full passage of the Old Testament, which looks forward to the future, and looks forward to the kingdom of God, and God's king coming into the world. And this gives us a bit of an idea why it was, that the people were very uncomfortable with what Jesus was saying. Because the first thing that he says when he talks about how I am the fulfillment of the scripture is that he is the Christ, isn't it? So in verse 18, he says about himself, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, over the last uh, week, if you remember, last week when we looked at uh, Jesus and his, the beginning of his ministry, we saw that Jesus was closely tied with the Holy Spirit. Every, every part of the way he was punctuated by Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was baptized by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was in the Holy Spirit. So if you, if you have up, look up here, this is what we learned last week. Right at the beginning of his ministry, remember how he was baptized in the River Jordan? And it says there in verse 22, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. In chapter 4, verse 1, it said that Jesus was full of the Spirit after he was baptized and he returned from the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the desert where he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. And then, at the beginning of today's passage, in chapter 4, verse 14, again, Jesus returned to the Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So as we've seen in this short section, Jesus was shown three times to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, marked out by the Holy Spirit, and guided by the Holy Spirit. But now Jesus is saying 
as he refers to this passage in uh, Isaiah chapter 61, that the Holy Spirit has anointed me. He is the anointed one. Now, the word anointed one literally means Messiah or Christ. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying about himself. When he says, I am the anointed one, that the Holy Spirit has anointed me, he is saying, I am the Christ. I am the King. I am the Messiah. So the, the Holy Spirit marking out Jesus is not just so that uh, the Holy Spirit will guide Jesus or teach Jesus or empower Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is a bit like my, the name tag. You see, like, you know, my name tag says Andrew. But the Holy Spirit has given Jesus a name tag and it says the Anointed One. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And uh, earlier on when we looked at uh, the book of Luke, we said that actually the Christ, the expectations of the Christ would be that he would rule the world eternally and he would inherit the whole world. So the Anointed One uh, is referred to in Psalm chapter 2. So if you look up here at Psalm chapter 2, again a very important um, passage in the Old Testament. Where it talks about how uh, the kings of the earth and the rulers gather against the Lord and His anointed one, His Christ or His Messiah. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the one the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger. He terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. So Jesus is really claiming really great things about himself. That he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the one who would inherit the whole world. Now that's really heavy stuff because I guess you would feel a bit uncomfortable too if I came up to you today and uh, let's say it's Synod Sunday or something and I'm the guest speaker and uh, I come to you and I start preaching to you from the Old Testament and then all of a sudden I say to you, today I have fulfilled this passage of scripture, you all be looking at me thinking, okay, that's a bit weird. What does he mean by that, right? And I go on to say that I am the Son of God and I am the Christ and I am the Messiah. What would you do? Would you take up your Bibles and start throwing at me? Blasphemy, right? Or something like that. But that's what Jesus is, called, is, is claiming about himself. He is saying that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is God's Son. But what else is he claiming about himself when he says that he fulfills Isaiah 61? Well, he says there in verse 18 onwards, that he has come to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus is sometimes mistakenly uh, seen as saying that he is coming to... Uh, to start off a social revolution, right? Good news to the poor. Okay, he's going to bring in a social program where poor people will become rich, or maybe he's come to bring political freedom. That's what some of them, some people take this text to mean, say in South America or Africa, right? Liberation. Jesus has come to set the oppressed free, or maybe he's come to uh, bring prison reform or medical revolution so blind people can see. Now that's a mistake because. What Jesus is saying here is not purely social, not economic, and not political. And we can see that in the ministry of Jesus because Jesus doesn't walk around and say, hey, I can't minister to you, right, because you don't look very blind, and you're not in prison, and you're not oppressed. Right? He, he doesn't look around and say, hey, you know, I'm only here for the poor people. No, because next week we will see he comes for people like Levi, the tax collector, who is very rich. 
Jesus, in his ministry, did not give out any money. And uh, he left John the Baptist in prison. When he finished his ministry, there were still many blind people. And uh, when he died on the cross, the Romans were still in power. So Jesus was not involved in a social or political or economic uh, agenda. But he was thinking, when he says here, the poor, the prisoners, the blind and the oppressed, he was thinking in terms of biblical categories, spiritual categories. We can see that because of context. Okay, context is so important. Remember, we keep saying context tells us how to understand the words that the Bible uses. Okay, we don't need a dictionary, we just need the context of the Bible. So what does Jesus mean here when he says he's going to preach good news to the poor? What does that mean, good news to the poor? Now, the poor here can mean the poor economically, but it also has the idea of people who are poor because they are needy, they are desperate. They are poor and needy and desperate for God. Now, uh, for those of you who do the Bible reading that I recommended from uh, you know, uh, McShane, uh, yesterday the Bible reading was Psalm chapter 40. And in Psalm chapter 40, I noticed that King David, you know King David, he's so rich, right? King David, he calls himself poor and needy before God. So when Jesus says here that he's come to preach good news to the poor, he doesn't mean just financially poor, but the people who are needy and desperate for God. These people need God. They see their need for God. Now again, I'm going to show you from the context because in uh, Luke chapter 2, Oh, sorry, Luke chapter 1, the next slide. Oh, do we have Luke chapter Okay, that's why I didn't put it down, you need your Bibles. Okay, if you look at Luke chapter 1, look at Luke chapter 1 and the song of Mary when she is told that uh, she's pregnant of Jesus. Look at what it says there in chapter 1, verse 46 to 53. Mary says, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. For he has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and he has sent the rich away empty. Now when you look at the Bible there, right, look at what the Bible says. You, For those of you who have uh, multicolored pens, all the better. You notice that the words poor, humble, and those who fear him are those who are blessed by God. You know, look at those passages. He is mindful of the humble state of his servant. His mercy extends to those who fear him in verse 50. In verse 52, he has lifted up the humble. In verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. Now, the word poor there definitely just doesn't mean financially poor. The word poor here is a synonym or another way of saying people who are humble. People who fear God. People who are hungry for God. People who are wanting God's mercy. In the same way, when you look at the Bible here again, the rich, the proud, the rulers, they are all classed in one category as well. Now, the rich and the rulers, 
Jesus was saying, and uh, God was saying here, tend not to be needy and desperate for God. Right? I mean, generally, they are proud, which is what it says here in verse 51. So what Jesus is saying is, is he has come to fulfill Isaiah 61, not to make poor people financially rich, but he has come to bring good news to those who see themselves in a desperate, needy, humble way before God. That's what Jesus is coming to do. The second thing is, if you turn back me to Luke chapter 4, Jesus says he has come to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Now the prisoners are not those people who are in Changi or Queenstown locked in those four walls. Okay, remember context is very important. The time of Isaiah, uh, if you look up here in the map, right, uh, was written when Babylon had come and destroyed Israel, destroyed the temple, destroyed the city, and they had taken all the people, where's my pointer? They'd taken all the people of Jerusalem, right, and brought them to Babylon. And the way that the Bible expresses that is not that it was some accident of history, that, you know, it's just like the Japanese conquering Singapore or something like that. But it was more that God was punishing His people because they were sinful and rebellious. They were not prisoners of Babylon, but they were prisoners of the punishment of God because of their sin and their rebellion. They were prisoners of God's judgment. And the, the people in Isaiah's time, were waiting to be set free from the prison of God's judgment. And Jesus says, I have come to proclaim good news to people who are imprisoned by God's judgment, imprisoned by sin and rebellion. Jesus then goes on to say that he has come to proclaim recovery of sight for the blind. Again, Jesus heals blind people in uh, in his ministry, but he, that is not his, his main aim, people who are physically blind, right? But again, it's about spiritual sight. Because, as we've seen in the book of Luke, uh, salvation is seen as sight. It's like salvation and sight seem to be similar. So, I, I hope I printed this one out for you. Next slide. So, you notice in um, chapter 1 and chapter 2, the way that salvation is expressed is all about light and sight and guidance. Right? So in verse 37, this is what Jesus is supposed to do, to give his people a knowledge of salvation. You see knowledge, being able to see in your mind, through the forgiveness of sins, through the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. See? By, by, by sending light, people can see where they're going. They're, they're able to see. And Simeon says in chapter 2, verse 28, Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. You've prepared in the sight of all people a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. See, that's why Jesus doesn't spend all his time healing but proclaiming, by preaching so that people can see and understand the way of salvation. And last of all, he talks about the release of the oppressed. Again, it's not political oppression. From last week, we saw that Jesus was tempted by Satan, and uh, we saw that historically, no one is able to break the bondage of Satan and sin in their life. They're oppressed by Satan. But here, Jesus is going to set people free from those who are oppressed 
by sin and Satan. Now, as we come to the last point, if you, I need you to keep following, right? In verse 19, all of this is wrapped up and tied up with and sort of covered together by this thing called to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, with this one verse, he sort of wraps up everything because this time, the year of the Lord's favor, is a very important phrase in the Bible. Now, what is this year of the Lord's favor? Now, we understand this thing called Sabbath, right? Sabbath in the Bible is where for every seven days, uh, they must take one day off to rest. Okay, Every seven days, one day off is a Sabbath. And then every seven years, they're supposed to take one year off where they don't plant in that field. Okay, So every seven days, one day off. Every seven years, one year off. But then when you have seven times seven, what is that? 49, okay, that's good, you see. Your mass is getting better now the more I preach, right? 7 times 7 is 49. In the 50th year, there's this thing called the year of the Lord's favor or the year of Jubilee. And in this year, you can call it like a super Sabbath, where there will be a big rest because you're basically setting everything back to zero. So what happens in the 50th year is, uh, let's say you've made, made bad decisions uh, all through your life, okay? You know, maybe you invested wrongly in the stock exchange, you lost money when you bought your card, high COE, right? you got divorced, whatever, then you have to sell your land. In the 50th year, you would get back all the land that you had when uh, you, know, you began, as in when they entered the promised land, God says, okay, this is, this is your plot of land in Haogang, right? Okay, so, you know, after how many years, all the pieces of land get sold off and unblocked. But 50 years later, God says at that 50th year, you get back all that land that you got when you first entered into the promised land. And not only that, if you were a slave, you would also be set free. So that 50th year is a bit like what someone in my Bible study said. It's like a global reset. Okay, everything goes back to square one. All the mistakes, all your sins, all your wrongs, all get wiped out and you start all over again. A pastor said that uh, it's a bit like an amnesty. You know, uh, we don't really have amnesty in Singapore, but in Australia, I remember they had this gun amnesty where it's illegal to own certain types of guns in Australia. Okay? So the government said, okay, for the next three months, there's an amnesty. You can bring your M16 rifle, right? Your Magnum gun or whatever. Just bring it to the police station. We don't know how you got it. You bring it there and uh, we start from scratch again. And, uh, you know, no questions asked, everything forgiven. And that's a bit like what's happening here. So on the 50th year, there's like a global reset, a global amnesty, where God says all the wrongs that you've did, all the sins that you've done, God will overlook it, you can start again. And that's what Jesus says that He is bringing, He as God's Son, as the Christ is bringing. And that He's bringing a year of the Lord's favor. Global reset. Total amnesty, free from your sin, free from spiritual blindness, free from captivity and judgment, free from oppression to Satan, a fresh start. Now you sort of think that uh, this was great news for his hometown people. They would say, yeah, you know, let's go Jesus, let's go and follow Jesus, right? Because he is the king and he is bringing in this wonderful kingdom of God where there's forgiveness and peace with God. But if you look in the passage, they, uh, they didn't quite like uh, what Jesus was saying. I mean, they liked Jesus, what Jesus was saying, actually. They loved what Jesus was saying. 
Uh, if you look there, in verse 22, all spoke well of him, amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So they, they liked his preaching. They said, okay, you know, we've heard a lot about Jesus. He's a good preacher. We like his preaching. But they just had a problem with the preacher. They didn't have a problem with the message. They had a problem with the messenger. Because they said, this cannot be the Christ. Jesus cannot be the Christ, right? He's claiming to be the Christ, but he is just Joseph's son. Isn't he just the son of the carpenter down the road? Isn't he just my neighbor's son? The guy that used to you know, be in a, a preschool with my son? How can he be the Christ? And in their heart, in verse 23, this is what they were thinking. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, what is this uh, saying? Physician, heal yourself. Uh, basically, in uh, today's language, it's a bit like saying, get out of here, right? Get real. It's like saying, look, it's a, it's a, it's a saying of extreme skepticism. So it's a bit like, okay, let's say you go and see a doctor. Okay, maybe you're going to see Sing Yin Pokim, and then you go in there and they say, okay, look, can you take this terrible tasting medicine? And instead of saying, yes, yes, you know, I will take the terrible tasting medicine because I believe that it will make me better, I say to the doctor, no, you take it first, right? You take it first and let me see whether you get better before I take it. Right, physician, heal yourself. It's uh, the same uh, sort of phrase like in uh, when Jesus was being crucified in Luke chapter 23, where Jesus was hanging on the cross Right, and uh, the soldiers came out, mocked him, and they offered him wine vinegar, saying, "If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself." Now, when when the when the soldiers say that, and when the hometown uh, Nazareth people say that to Jesus, they're not saying, "Yes, we believe in you, Jesus." They are saying, "No, we do not believe in you. Prove to us before we believe to you. Right? Do something so that we may believe in you." So the people in his hometown, in his synagogue, did not believe in Jesus at all, that he, that he was the Christ, or he could bring in the kingdom of God. Then Jesus tells this really interesting story, and uh, as you're reading the, the, the narrative, don't you think it's a bit strange, this story? Because, you know, one minute they're not sure whether he's the Christ or Joseph's son. Then Jesus tells this story, and then bang! They want to take him off the cliff and throw him off. What? I mean, when, you, when I read the story, I think, what's the big deal, right? It's just about Elijah and Elisha. What is so offensive about this story? So this story, basically, Jesus says, right, uh, that I show you that there were many widows in Israel's time, in Elijah, sorry, in Israel during Elijah's time in verse 25, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel who had leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, but yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So, okay, what's so offensive? What's so offensive about what Jesus said? Well, I think we need to understand uh, the context of these two stories. First of all, Elijah and Elisha were like the, the great prophets of Israel. Okay, the great prophets of Israel. And the first thing is Jesus is saying, look, these two prophets didn't end up helping the people of Israel, their own people, but they ended up helping foreigners. And this was very offensive, right? Because these foreigners couldn't even go to the temple, but God helped them. 
But more than that, I think if you understand the passage, you need to take your time to understand the passage. I'll give you the, the passages. You can go look it up in your own time. 1 Kings chapter 17, right? What happens in 1 Kings chapter 17? Well, Elijah uh, meets this widow, and this widow only has food for one more meal. If not, she will die. Only one more food for one more meal. If not, the, 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 her son and herself will die. That's what it says in 1 Kings chapter 17. So she's going along, and she bumps into Elijah. And Elijah says, to this widow who only has food for one more meal and says, the food that you have, cook it and give it to me first. What would you do? Imagine you only have food for one more meal for your child and yourself and you meet the prophet Elijah and Elijah says, give me that food, feed me first. What would you do? Well, the widow cooks the food and gives the food to Elijah. And because of that, Elijah gives this woman and her child unlimited supply of food. Now the next story in 2 Kings chapter 5 is about Elisha, and it's very similar, right? Because Elisha is this great foreign general, and he hears about the... Pro- sorry, uh, Naaman sorry, is this great foreign general, and he hears about Elisha. And... He goes to Elisha to get healed. And even the king of Israel doesn't believe that Elisha can heal Naaman of his leprosy. 2 Kings chapter 5, you can read it yourself. Naaman eventually does what Elisha asked him to do and goes to the Jordan River and washes seven times and he is healed. Now what do these two stories have in common? Apart from the fact that two people who are Gentiles are healed. It is that these two people were desperate for help and they turned to God's prophet and they they trusted and had faith and were blessed. Can you imagine the widow only had food for one more meal for herself and her son? She didn't say to Elijah, Hey, Elijah, can you do me a miracle first before I give you some food? No, she just believed and she gave him his food. Naaman didn't go to um, Elijah and said, Hey, you know, could you do me a couple of miracles first before I go into the River Jordan and wash myself? No, he just went to the River Jordan and believed what Elisha said. So what Jesus is actually saying, which is so offensive to his hometown crowd was, you need to get off your high horse and you need to just trust and have faith in me. Right? You are trying to set the agenda for my life and ask me to fit into your terms but I am the Christ. You fit onto my agenda and you come to me on my terms. And that was really deeply offensive to his hometown crowd. Because they wanted Jesus to fit into their expectations. They wanted Jesus to prove himself before they would believe in him. But Jesus says, no. You come to me on my terms. You get off your high horse and stop judging me and accept me for who I am. And as we look in the passage, this is the last time Uh, If we look in the book of Luke, this is the last time that Jesus ever went to his hometown in Nazareth. And because of that, those people in his hometown, they would miss out on the kingdom of God. They would miss out on the year of God's favor. Because they wanted Jesus on their terms. They would not accept Jesus on his terms. They wanted 
to judge Jesus. They didn't want to get off their high horse and accept Jesus. They were not poor or blind or in prison. They did not see themselves oppressed. Now the next set of uh, the next story happens in Capernaum, which is the next slide. Okay, so Jesus was here in, in Nazareth, and it says that he went down to Capernaum. Now you might sort of ask yourself, why is it down? Right, it looks up to you, right? But Nazareth was actually up in the hill country. If you can see there's hills there, and Nazareth was down in the valley where the water was. And in Capernaum, we learn a few more things, interesting things about Jesus. We sort of confirms to us that he can actually be the Christ and he actually brings in the kingdom of God. And there are three things that really come out and strike, are striking in the, what he does in Capernaum. The first thing is that he seems to have this supernatural power to heal. You notice that? Look at what it says there in verse, in, uh, in, in, in verse uh, 38. He heals Simon's mother-in-law of a high fever. Now, you might sort of think, what's the big deal, right? I mean, a couple of Panadols will heal me of a high fever. But in those days, fever was a very serious thing. But even the way, even if we uh, think, well, high fever is not a big deal, notice what happens when Jesus heals the woman. First of all, you know, think of the last time you were really sick where you had a high fever. Now, usually, even after you take your Panadol or you take your antibiotics, it takes you like about a week before you are back to full strength. I mean, that's a way for me. Like, maybe I'm just a very weak person. Okay? But, you notice that in verse 39, as soon as Jesus rebukes the fever, she got up at once and began to wait in them. This was an old woman, right? Mother-in-law is not usually a young person. This was an old person who was healed and she got up straight away and served them food. And in verse 40, it says that not only does uh, Jesus heal very completely, but he heals with a 100% guarantee, money-back guarantee. Because in verse 40, it says, When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses, and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Now, isn't that really strange? Because every person that Jesus touched was healed. Now, no one is doing what Jesus is doing here in this passage today. What Jesus was doing was equivalent to going to uh, KK Hospital. Oh no, that's only children, right? Tantok Seng Hospital. And going to the first floor. And going to every room. And every person that he touches in every room gets out and leaves. So that after he finishes the floor, that floor is empty. That, that ward is empty, right? And then he goes up to the second floor. He does the same thing on the third floor. Fourth floor, fifth floor. That is what he's doing. And so much so that everybody coming to the MRT going to the hospital will be filled with sick people and everybody going the other way will be healthy. That is what Jesus is doing. That is the sort of power that Jesus has. Now this shows us that he actually has the power to fulfill Isaiah 61, isn't it? He has the ability to make the blind see. He can heal. He can bring in the year of the Lord's favor. That's really impressive. But not only that, it says there, if you go on, in verse 41, that many demons came to uh, many demons came out of many people shouting, "You are the Son of God!" And he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Or even in verse thirty-three, in the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an evil spirit, and he cried out at the top of his voice, "Ha! What do you want of us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God." Now, 
Why does Jesus heal these people in terms of getting out the demons in them? Because he's releasing them from oppression. Look at what it says there in verse 35. I know we just read it and we don't really notice what's happening here. But pay attention to what it says there in verse 35. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly, come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out of him without injuring him. Now, don't you think that's strange? Because it says that it came out of him without injuring him. It shows you that Satan, or whatever spirit was oppressing that man, wanted to injure this man. Because that's the point of Satan, isn't it? Satan or the devil doesn't have good intentions for us. Satan or the devil wants ill to us. It wants to oppress us. It wants to hurt us. It wants to injure us. But Jesus comes and confronts these oppress people and freeze them. Now the interesting thing also here is that every time that Jesus confronts these demons, they know who Jesus is. They have no trouble recognizing who Jesus is. They are not like the townspeople, the synagogue people. They know who Jesus is. Uh, they say that he is the Holy One of God. They, they say that he is the Christ. They say that he is the Son of God. They have no trouble seeing the identity of Jesus. So why then does Jesus tell them to shut up? Every time he says, uh, actually he just says something very quiet, be quiet lah. But in a polite way he's saying to them, shut up, right? Why does he not just say, hey, this is free advertising for me, right? I mean, the people in, in my hometown, they couldn't see who I am. These people can go and correct them and tell them, look, I'm really Jesus. I, I'm the Christ. I'm the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I think the reason is because he doesn't want uh, endorsement from spirits who are actually not worshipping him. Because these spirits acknowledge Jesus, but they fear Jesus. They don't have faith in Jesus. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. They are scared of him. So he's not interested in having an endorsement by these spirits, or these demons, or these satanic uh, presences who only fear him. And that's why his mission, the third thing that comes out of this, is that the mission is to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. If you want to believe in Jesus, you believe because of what Jesus tells you and not because of what spirit, or some spirit tells you. Now, the whole of Jesus' ministry is really centered around his preaching and teaching. Right, in verse 31, uh, we see that it says that after he leaves uh, Nazareth, he goes to Capernaum. What does he do? He begins to teach people. And then at the end of the section, what does it say? He says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. So the aim of Jesus is not to open people's physical eyes, but their spiritual eyes. Now, when you look at this passage, how long was Jesus really healing for? Look at the passage. How long was the Jesus clinic open for? Right? How long was the his uh, his uh, doctor's office open? Well, if you look here, look carefully at the passage, let's pay attention to the passage. It says there in verse 40, when the sun was setting, verse 40, when the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sicknesses. Why did the people only come when the sun was setting? They didn't like traveling during the day, very hot? No, because it was the Sabbath, right? And the people could not travel long distances on the Sabbath. So the people all came to Jesus when the sun was setting after the Sabbath ended. Because for the Jews, a day starts when the sun comes, uh, the sun sets, and the, you know, 
And when the sun sets, that's a new day. So after, when the sun sets, that's a new day, no more Sabbath, they can start traveling. And how long did Jesus minister to the sick people for? One night. Because at verse 42, at daybreak, Jesus went away. So the Jesus Clinic, which uh, heals 100% of people, only opened from day when the night came to daybreak. So you can imagine why the people wanted to hold Jesus back. They're like, hey, you know, my uncle hasn't come, you know. My, uh, my, my, my relative from Woodlands is still traveling down. You know, he's stuck because there was a breakdown on the, the north-south line, right? Because he was only healing for one night. And that's all he was interested in because his main aim was to bring in the kingdom of God, to bring forgiveness, not to heal in that way. So as we read of Jesus and what he is doing, and what he has done and what he has come to do, I think that the passage is challenging you. Which group of people are you like in your life? Which are you like? Are you like the townsfolk in this story, in this historical account? Because the townsfolk people basically reject Jesus because they do not come on their terms, on their agenda. So recently my uncle from Switzerland uh, came down to visit me and I tried to talk to him many times uh, to, about Christianity because you know we sit in the hospital with my grandfather, you know my grandfather's in the hospital. And uh, so we're always talking about Jesus. I'm trying to talk to him about Jesus, or at least I'm trying to talk, steer the conversation back to Jesus. And he says things to me like, oh, you know, I believe God is like this, and I believe Jesus is like that, but I believe that you can be saved without Jesus. I said, but how can you say that? Because, you know, Jesus died on the cross and everything. And then he'll say things to me like, well, you know, if Jesus is not like that, then I can't believe in a Jesus that is like that. If God is not like that, I can't believe in a God that is not like that. And, you know, he'll say things like, oh, you know, my, my mother is in heaven preparing the way uh, for him. And I'm like, okay. Right? Now, I, I, my, my, my worry for him as I speak to him many times is, this is the Jesus of your conception. This is the Jesus of your agenda and your terms. This is the Jesus that you want to see and the God that you want to see, but it's not Jesus as he really is. You either come to Jesus as he really is on his terms, or you don't come to Jesus at all. You cannot make Jesus jump through your hoops and fit into your square box and do the things that you want him to do, right? Because at the end of the day, that is not who Jesus is. He is the Christ. He is the King. He is the ruler of the world. And we do not make demands on Jesus and say, well, you know, Jesus, I will come to you if you make me really rich. Or, you know, I will come to you if you give me a really, really good boyfriend or girlfriend get married. Because God is just going to say to you, you need to get off your high horse and meet Jesus as you are. And where are we? We are poor. We are blind. We are in prison and we are oppressed. And we need to come to Jesus as the king. And not the other way around. We are not the king and Jesus is the poor person. Maybe when you meet with Jesus, you're like the demons. Now, you're not really like demons, but their approach to Jesus is like the demons, right? Because the demons, they know of Jesus. They recognize Jesus intellectually. Yeah, okay, that's Jesus. He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Holy One. But they don't worship Jesus. They don't bow down before Jesus. They don't uh, recognize Jesus as their king. So there was this uh, illustration which was given to me. I, I think this is true. Apparently, there's this U.S. president. I checked that on Google, so it must be a lot. 
a real thing, called Andrew Jackson. And uh, once he went to church, and there was a preacher who was there preaching that Sunday, and he was told, he said, oh, you know, the president, Andrew Jackson, is here today. Can you please not say anything that will offend him? Right, so the preacher said, yeah, 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 don't worry about it, don't worry about it, right? So, uh, you know, sure enough, he got up to preach. And, you know, I don't know, this, Andrew Jackson, I, I saw I saw him Google, he, he was the president a long time ago, like, 100 years or more plus. So he got up there at the congregation. And then the preacher began by saying, I hear that the president, Andrew Jackson, is among us today. And I've been told to watch what I say. So I'm going to watch what I say. And I want to say to you, Andrew Jackson, that if you do not repent, you're going to hell. Right? <laughs> now, it's, it's true, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, even if you're the president, if you, I'm sure Andrew Jackson knew of Jesus. He knew who Jesus was. But unless you choose to come to him in humility, in fear, in humbleness, in uh, dependence, then you don't really have a relationship with Jesus. So you might go to Bible study, you know, Jesus from church. But do you really bow down before Jesus? Because that's the, the, the demons, they knew of Jesus, but they would not bow down to him. They would not worship him. So I think the last group of people are the ones who are truly benefiting from what Jesus has come to, come to do. These people are not self-sufficient. They are not proud and they are not reliant, self-reliant, right? But they really see themselves as needy, as desperate and as poor before God. They need something from God. They need God. They see themselves as prisoners, that they're really prisoners to sin and judgment and sin. They really see themselves as blind, that they can't help themselves. You know, when you're blind, you're really needy. They're really oppressed because they can see that Satan is oppressing them. And only then will we turn to Jesus and accept him for who he is. So there was a pastor who married me in uh, this place, this church in North Sydney, a wonderful church, very rich part of Sydney. His name was Simon Manchester. And he gave the story about how there was someone who once came to him and said, oh, I would like to work with the poor people. And uh, my, this, the pastor that married me, Simon Manchester, said, oh, I work with the poor every day. And this guy said, why? How can it's such a rich area, right? He says, no, these people are desperately poor, but they just don't know it. They may have swimming pools. They may have swimming pools in their backyard. They may have uh, Porsches in their garage, uh, but they are really poor because they don't see their need before God. And I think that's the case for so many people that they, we think we, are, we have everything we need, but actually we don't. We have a great need for a savior. We have a great need to be set free from sin. We have a great need to be free from Satan and judgment, but we just can't see it. So some people say that, you know, what Jesus wants most of me, Jesus has, Jesus wants to make me happy. Right? Some people think, oh, Jesus wants to make me happy. Does Jesus really want to make you happy? No, I don't think so. Jesus wants you to be humble. Jesus wants you to see that you need him more than anything else in the whole world. As I was uh, preparing this passage, I was thinking, you know, really give thanks to God how great Jesus is because He has come to save us and we have nothing. We are poor, desperately poor. We are blind. We are prisoners. We are oppressed. How can we offer anything to Jesus? We have nothing. We just have to accept Jesus because we just say to God, I have nothing. 
And I need Jesus because He is the one that's going to save me. So will you come to Jesus on His terms or do you impose your terms on Jesus? Will you come to Jesus with great need or do you feel that, you know, oh, you know, I've just, I just need Jesus once in a while because I'm basically a very good person. No, it doesn't work that way. So I hope that each and every one of us truly will understand who Jesus is and how great He is and where we stand before Jesus and how we need to come to Him as truly needy and desperate people. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, help us to see beyond what we have read into the real life of Jesus. To not just skim through the words and just to think that we've read it so many times before, Jesus healing people, Jesus casting out demons, but to see what he is really doing and to see who he is and that he is bringing your kingdom and your forgiveness. We pray that you may break our stubborn hearts, our stiff necks, to see that we are truly needy people before you. In spite of what we have done in this world, what possessions we have, what accomplishments we, we have achieved, that we need Jesus all that desperately. Because it's only through Him that we will be set free, that we will see, that we will be rich spiritually, that we will not be oppressed by Satan. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.